Hey Trekkies, science fans, and Trekkie scientists. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is Mike Wong, and today I'm bringing you a recording from the 2018 Star Trek Las Vegas convention. I was fortunate enough to attend this event with my friends James T. Keene and Aaron Rodriguez last month, and I am also extremely fortunate to have been able to record an episode of Strange New Worlds for you with Drs. Kayla Iacovino and David Williams at the Star Trek convention. Both Kayla and David hail from Arizona State University, and they're both much more important people than me in the Star Trek and scientific realms, so I definitely look up to them and got the same kind of thrill talking to them as I would an actor or actress from Star Trek. Now, there's no such thing as a quiet place at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, so this recording is full of background noise. In fact, we're actually in Quark's bar, so if you want, you can imagine us settled down in a bustling bar scene on Deep Space Nine. Double wheels spinning, Ferengi bartenders taking our gold press latinum, and all sorts of aliens from every corner of the galaxy shooting the cosmic breeze. I'm here at the Las Vegas Star Trek convention, surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of Star Trek fans, many of them in Starfleet uniform, if not other more exotic forms of Star Trek cosplay that are always fun to, to look out for. I'm sitting across from Kayla Iacovino and David Williams, and I'm really excited to interview them about science and Star Trek and what it's like to be at a Star Trek convention. So, Kayla, you're a volcanologist at Arizona State University. That's right. That doesn't mean you study Vulcans, though. What does no. it mean? <laughs> it's funny, I have to correct people. You know, since I go to Star Trek conventions a lot, when I tell people I'm a volcanologist, first I say, well, with an O, not a U, uh, it means I study volcanoes. Mm. Um, so, I'm interested in how the Earth makes more Earth how the Earth makes rocks from the inside out. And so that's what I study in the field and in the lab and behind the computer. Really cool. Yeah, I've definitely got a couple of volcano questions for you awesome. later on. You're also a really important person to Star Trek conventions in general because I've seen you as a panelist and uh, you just hosted a panel, in fact, on Star Trek Online. And you're also the editor and a podcaster for trekmovie.com. Mm -hmm. So you're a very important person to, to <laughs> Trek you. fandom. And I'll have a, a couple of questions uh, about all of that later on. And uh, Dave, or, or Dr. Dave, as you're, you're well known as, you're a professor at Arizona State University. You study planetary science. And uh, I've even seen you give science talks at Star Trek conventions. And that's one of my life goals, is to give a science of Star Trek talk. So you're somewhat of a hero to me. And you also always beat me at Star Trek trivia. So uh, you know, <laughs> I keep telling myself, this is why I'm not a professor yet, because <laughs> I don't know enough Star Trek. Um, so welcome both of you to, Thank you to the show. Yeah, um, thanks for having us. Um, is there anything that I missed about your bios or anything that you'd like to share with our listeners about yourselves? Well, I'll just give a brief bio about myself. Um, as a child of the 70s, I grew up watching the original series when it was syndicated five nights a week, and the animated series was on Saturday mornings, and watching Star Trek really inspired in me an interest in space and wanting to get involved in space science. 
And it was at the same time as the last of the Apollo missions, the atmospheric test of the Space Shuttle Enterprise were going on. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, the, the Space Shuttle actually flew in the early 1980s. And Carl Sagan's PBS series Cosmos came out when I started high school. And so all of that sealed in me a desire to want to do space science. And so I went to Indiana University and I majored in astronomy and astrophysics, but I realized I didn't want to study stars or galaxies or globular clusters or nebulae. I wanted to study planets because the Star Trek crew, they explored planets. And so I found out that there was this whole field called planetary geology, where you study the surfaces of the other planets and moons and asteroids of the solar system using data from NASA's robotic spacecraft. So that's what I switched into graduate school and uh, got a master's at Arizona State, a PhD at the University of Alabama. I'm actually, just like Kayla, trained as a volcanologist. I study volcanoes and I actually teach a class called planetary volcanology at Arizona State University where we study the volcanoes and the deposits wherever they occur in the solar system. So there's been an incarnation of Star Trek with me through my entire career. Next Generation was on when I was an undergrad, DS9 and Voyager were on when I was a grad student, uh, Enterprise was on when I was a postdoc. So um, you know, I've always had it with me as, as part of my career. And now that I work on NASA planetary missions, I've worked on several, Galileo at Jupiter, Magellan at Venus, Mars Express, the European Mars Orbiter, the NASA Dawn mission, first at the asteroid Vesta, now at the Dwarf Planet Ceres, and we're now in the process of developing the next robotic mission to go to the asteroid belt to visit asteroid number 16, which is named Psyche, which is the largest metal asteroid in the solar system. We visited worlds of rock, we visited worlds of gas, we visited worlds of dust, we visited worlds of ice, but we have yet to visit a world made out of metal. And what geology is like on a world of metal is something we're very much looking forward to finding out about. That's awesome. Kayla, do you have a similar story? I definitely do, yeah. Um, it's funny, as you're, as you're speaking, Dave, I'm thinking how similar my story is to yours. Uh, but I have to say I love that when you talk about growing up you know, academically with Star Trek, you have each series that was on, those are the things that demarcate these different periods in your career. It's like, oh, that was happening when uh, DS9 was on the air. That was that period of my life. <laughs> yeah, just like you, you know, I was inspired by watching Star Trek as a kid. I used to watch it with my family. Both of my parents are Star Trek fans. And when Next Generation was airing, you know, they'd watch it every week, have friends over, and, and I would see that. And um, so it became a thing that I bonded with my parents over quite a bit. And just like you, you know, I wanted to do that in real life, like, and that sense of exploration and wonder, and this idea that that the way Star Trek explores is to, you know, better humankind. It's these very noble goals, um, and so that was what made me want to go into science. And just like you, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was something more astronomy-based, um, because I thought that's how you get to study space. Because space is super cool. And for me, I think it's even more of an extreme story than yours when you realize, oh, I want to go to the planets that we see. That's, that's you know, whenever they mention globular clusters in Star Trek, it's like some random, like, line in an episode. The show's usually not about a globular cluster. Yeah. It's about a planet and the people on it. And so I had that same thought where I thought, I didn't, I don't want to study these things that are far away that I can't touch. And I'm a very tactile person. So I'm the, I'm the person who is in the museum and trying to touch everything that says do not touch and the, the people have to come and tell me to knock it off. I, I, that's how I learn about things and interact with them. You know, I, I like taking stuff up in my hands. And so I wasn't even satisfied with planetary geology because I, I'm not willing to wait until you know we send humans to Mars. 
I want to go and explore the quote-unquote alien parts of our own planet. And so I feel like I get to do Star Trek in my job. I get to travel to volcanoes all over the world. I've worked in places like Antarctica and North Korea. And I get to meet the people who live in these places uh, and you know, get to know their story and sort of how the geology tells the story of the people who live there. So it's, to me, that's a very, very Star Trek way to live my life, and so that's, that's what yeah. keeps me going. Kayla, Kayla does really well. She does a lot more field work than I do. I, I live vicariously by looking at the images from the different spacecraft. But yeah, there's something to be said for going out in the field. I have done a little bit of that around the world. Uh-huh. And you two actually know each other from ASU, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kayla was an undergrad there when I was a postdoc. Okay. And somehow, I don't remember how we met or interacted at, at some Star Trek-related things, yeah. but then also she was a student in a class I taught called Geology of the Outer Planet Satellites, basically studying the moons of the outer solar system. Mm-hmm. That was back in 2010, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I graduated in 2010, so, so it was either 2009 nine or, or 10, yeah. Or that. Okay, very cool. So, as I mentioned, we're at a Star Trek convention, and a lot of our listeners may never have been to a Star Trek convention, so I wanted to ask you guys, what's your favorite aspect of coming to these things? First of all, I just want to say, if you've never been to a Star Trek convention, go. Yes, (laughs) definitely. They're not what most people expect, I think. I came to one, I think my first one was in 05 or 06, and I kind of came on a whim, thinking like, this will be neat, it's in Vegas, I like Vegas, it's fun. But it's, it blew me away, because it's this big party, and you're, you walk into this hotel, but you're instantly friends with like hundreds of people. And you just walk up to people and say, oh, hey, I like your shirt. And then you start chatting about Star Trek or whatever it is, you know, and, and you're just like instantly bonded with these people. And it becomes this thing where you come back year after year and see a lot of the same faces where you only get to see them at cons. And there's really a family, like the panels are great. You know, buying merchandise is fun. You know, seeing the actors is fun. But I don't come here to see the actors. You know, I come here to see the other fans. That's what conventions are about for me. For me, um, you know, I like to find ways to give back because, you know, Star Trek inspired me and my career to do science. So um, I, when I started coming to these conventions, I would give talks about the latest results from NASA's various planetary missions. And uh, I did that for quite a few years. And uh, I haven't done it recently because uh, around the 50th anniversary, they really want to focus on Star Trek and its content. But I am happy to continue to do that in the future, and I probably will at some point. So I like to give back, you know, to the fans and to Star Trek. I actually do come here. I like to see the actors, and and particularly with the new series that's out, I've interacted a lot of them uh, on social media uh, from Star Trek Discovery. So I'm looking forward to meeting, you know, some of them when they get here later this weekend. So, but yeah, it's, it's about interacting with the fans. We all have a passion for Star Trek. Star Trek has inspired many of us to do great things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great thing. And I echo Kayla saying that if you haven't been to a Star Trek convention, you should definitely go. And, you know, Creation only does this one in Vegas once a year. But you can find Star Trek-related content at a lot of other conventions. You know, right now is a big Comic-Con. You know, there's lots of Comic-Cons going around. And if you're lucky, they'll have Star Trek content or Star Trek actors coming to those events. And then let's not forget the where it all started with literary-focused science fiction conventions. We put on a couple in Phoenix every year. And, you know, those don't have actors, but we do put Star Trek panels on there. We all try and get writers or artists to come to those. And we can have a great time just talking that in a much smaller, intimate crowd than these big, expensive type of conventions like this one here in Las Vegas. Awesome. 
So speaking of giving back, Kayla was just giving back by moderating a panel on Star Trek Online. So Kayla, do you play Star Trek Online? Yeah, you know, I play it off and on. It's one of those things that, as you know, you know, being an academic, you don't have that much free time. But Star Trek Online is cool because it's one of these games that you really can kind of pick up and put down and come back to it pretty easily. And now that they've released it on consoles, you know, when it first came out, I had to worry about having a PC set up because I'm a Mac person usually. Now that it's out on consoles, I can, I've thrown it on my PS4 and every once in a while I'll whip it out and I like to start new games all the time and I'm going to be a Romulan today. And, it's a fun way to like really interact with the Star Trek universe. Yeah, definitely. I love logging in and just walking around mm -hmm. on an alien world or, or flying a ship, you know, just admiring the, the beautiful renderings that they have in the game. So while you can log on to Star Trek Online for free and explore the universe of Star Trek, Dave, you're actually actively involved in exploring strange new worlds inside of our own solar system, especially with the Dawn mission, the highly mm -hmm. successful Dawn mission to mm -hmm. Vesta and Ceres. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the Dawn mission and what your role in the mission is? Sure. Dawn is a Discovery class mission. That is the smallest size of the NASA robotic missions. They're about $450 million missions, and they have a very focused science objective. And in the case of the Dawn mission, it was specifically designed to visit the two most massive objects in the main asteroid belt located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And we stopped at asteroid number four, which is named Vesta, because it was the closer one. And we orbited it for about a year, a little more than a year. And I was in charge of the geological mapping campaign for the surface. So we made uh, several different types of geological maps of the surface to really understand that object's history and evolution. And then that particular spacecraft actually uses solar electric ion propulsion. So whenever I talk about the Dawn mission, I actually show some images from Spock's brain from the original series oh, because the, the Imorgs of Sigma Draconis used ion propulsion to steal Spock's brain. <laughs> and it's the very same type of concept that we use. Uh, NASA now has that as a propulsion technology that is very effective at visiting low-gravity bodies within our own solar system. So we use that to get to Vesta and then to depart from Vesta to where we're at right now, which is the dwarf planet Ceres. And we've been in orbiting that object since March of 2015. And once again, doing the same thing. I was in charge of the geological mapping campaign to identify that. And we're basically looking at these two objects because they're very, very different. Ceres is large and round. Vesta is smaller and irregularly shaped. It's a very rocky body. Its mineralogy suggests volcanic compositions on the surface, whereas Ceres is a very icy object, suggesting that you know it had a very different evolution with water and aqueous alteration of its minerals on its surface. So that was the goal of the mission, and we're in the final stages. We're doing some very close flybys of the very bright spots on Ceres that are in the news there. They turn out to be some sort of endogenic activity, some activity where molten material from within has been exposed on the surface. It could be what we call cryovolcanism. It could be a glacial phenomenon like pingos, but they're very salty, carbonate-rich materials that appear to be in, in volcanic-like deposits on the surface. And so we're really getting our close-up data of that to really understand that phenomenon. That's really cool. Cryovolcanism, so volcanism involving ices on a body that's farther out. Yeah, it's just a very, very cold, but when you take water and mix it with an antifreeze like methane or ammonia, it behaves the way silicate lavas do on Earth, and you can get these effusive-like flows, you can get these explosive plumes, 
is just they cold, occur at much colder temperatures, you know, between 100 and 200 Kelvin or something like that. So. That's really awesome. So, Kayla, you don't study volcanoes in the outer solar system, but you study them right here at home. Mm -hmm. So, in the final few episodes of Star Trek Discovery Season 1, we learned that the Klingon homeworld's Kronos is a highly volcanic world. Mm -hmm. And when we visit the planet in the final episode, we get this brilliant scene where Tilly is approached by this very creepy Orion. Uh, that's so sweet. No, thank you. I have, um, I actually have a very narrow esophagus. It's, uh, strained, but true. So, that's bad for that. I'm not, I'm not trying Get to... Get her it. out! You know what? I, I would love some. Just a little bit. <laughs> Inhale. Do you think, um, do you think I got an... who offers her a sniff of volcanic gases and she totally gets stoned off of them. And I've been just dying to ask a volcanologist like you, can you actually get high off of volcanic gases? And, and what's in volcanic gases? Um, that's a great question. First of all, that was an amazing scene. And like, shout out to Clint Howard. Yeah. That was a very pleasant surprise to see, you know, the Tranya guy back. Oh, yeah. He was in the very first production episode of the original series, The Corbomite Maneuver. Even though it didn't air first, yeah. okay. it was the first episode shot uh, for the series. That's amazing. And he's back, he's in what's currently the most recent one that's yes. been shot, so, or that's aired anyway. So, um, yeah, that was such a great scene. I loved all the volcano stuff. You know, unfortunately, they get a lot of it wrong. I think Hollywood has a very specific misunderstanding of how volcanoes work. The volcanic gases thing, can you get high off volcanic gases? I guess it depends on what you consider to be high. You know, I don't, I don't know, people sniff, you know, huff paint and stuff like that. That can't be very good for you. You can get sick off of it if you have too much of the sulfur dioxide coming out. Yeah, you know, like exactly. in the Hawaiian lava tubes. Yeah, so actually it's, it's, I would not recommend using it as a recreational drug. Um, <laughs> volcanic gases are corrosive. They have what are called acid gases in them. Volcanic gases are mostly made up of water, actually. The majority of gas coming out of a volcano is, is water vapor, but it's mixed with a lot of other stuff, and they can be in very high concentrations. So Dave mentioned sulfur dioxide. Um, there's hydrogen sulfide. That's the stuff that smells like rotten eggs. What did uh, we inhale? My mouth tastes like sulfur and, and ash. Volcanic vapor, straight from the source. And sulfur dioxide is what can mix with water in the air to form sulfuric acid. Uh, that's where acid rain comes from. There's also things like hydrogen fluoride. Hydrogen fluoride is one of the most corrosive acids probably on the planet, definitely any that I've ever worked with. It's a very dangerous chemical. Hydrogen fluoride can, can basically dissolve your bones from the inside out. There's some pretty nasty stuff in volcanic gases. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. It would not be a fun time. So they must have been mixing something else in with those volcanic gases for fertility to get high like that. Or, you know, Kronos is just a really weird planetary body that's made up of some kind of organic compounds that can give you a nice high when you sniff the stuff coming out of it. I don't know, I guess that's possible. Tell you to burn him? Go ahead, Tilly. First of all, um, so I'm very high, uh, but you need to listen to me. There are active volcanoes right beneath us right now. I thought it was interesting when they talked about the, uh, what I would presume to be lava tubes, when they talk about caves, you know, and, and volcanoes, they have to be lava tubes. And there can be very large lava tubes, you know, uh, if you've ever been to Hawaii and seen the Thurston lava tube, you can get some pretty large ones. I don't know if you can get them 
quite large enough to hold a Crossfield class starship in, yeah. even though they said that it was. But you know, I'm uh, finishing up the geological map of Olympus Mons on Mars. It's the largest volcano in the solar system. It's the size of the state of Arizona. It's 22 kilometers in height. It's very very diverse sets of lava flows that cover the surface. It's, it's, it just begs for exploration by some sort of a volcanic rover or something like that. I hope to get that published next year. Yes. I'll look out for that. So we also got to see a volcano in Star Trek Into Darkness, where mm -hmm. Spock has to drop into a volcano in a really super cool exposure suit. Not for scientific purposes, unfortunately, but to stop it from erupting. So. Can we actually stop volcanoes from erupting? Can we even predict when they're going to erupt? To answer your first question, I can say something that scientists usually cannot say, which is uh, pretty emphatically no. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we can't stop a volcano from erupting. There have been people who have tried to stop lava flows and things like that. Um, the problem really is that volcanoes are being driven from within the Earth. So deep down in the Earth, that's where the energy is coming from. So if you try to do something like what they did in, in Into Darkness, where they use a cold fusion bomb, because that makes things cold, right? Anyway, they use this thing to try to basically freeze the surface over, and then saying that would freeze up the whole volcano. Well, unfortunately, there are miles and miles of what we call volcanic plumbing underneath the volcano that's that's actually driving it. That's where all that magma is coming from, is down deep. So if you freeze over the top, you still have that momentum from the stuff pushing its way out. And there have been people who have tried to tried to stop lava flows. So once the lavas are flowing out, one of the biggest efforts was pumping water, because this is a volcano that was very close to the ocean. So using water from the ocean and pumping it onto a lava flow to try to freeze it, or at least re redirect it. And what they found was that it was completely ineffective, essentially. They were able to freeze a little bit of that front, but again, it's being driven from behind. So even if you stop the very front of the lava flow, the rest of it's just gonna plow through. And if you stop and think about, you know, it's not they're not moving very fast, but there's a ton of mass there. And so there's a massive amount of momentum that the flow has. And just trying to stop this huge mass of molten rock it takes more energy than we can produce to stop it from happening, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you'd even want to use, even if, even if it were possible, to have a cold fusion device to freeze a magma chamber. I, don't, I mean, how far can you go? Like you said, your plumbing comes from way down deep. Did it actually freeze the entire core of the planet? Right. That's not going to be good for the uh, inhabitants of uh, Nibiru anyway. Right. So. So as you mentioned, Kayla, you do field work, which means you actually do get up close and personal with volcanoes. I was wondering if you have a crazy away mission story to tell us about some, oh, you know, what was the most Star Trekky experience you had uh, actually doing scientific research at a volcano? I have so many, so many stories. Um, I think the one I'm going to talk about is some of my field research in North Korea. I think this really embodies the Star Trekiness of the work that I do. Um, we were working on a volcano in North Korea. It's actually on the border between China and North Korea. So about half of the volcano is in each country. Obviously, North Korea is you know, a, a geopolitically strained region. And the fact that the volcano is also on a border made it even like a bit more uh, of a strained kind of environment. But what we were there to do was not only to study this volcano, which produced one of the largest eruptions on Earth in recorded human histories in the last couple thousand years, it's very poorly studied because of where it's located. And we were going in there to study this volcano. We were also, uh, the major part of our mission was science diplomacy. 
So this idea that you, know, you could use science to reach people. So half of our team was you know, Westerners. Uh, I was in the UK at the time. We had some people from the United States, some people from Europe, and the other half were North Korean scientists working in North Korea. So we were working with them, and it really was a completely group effort. You know, we definitely didn't want to barge in there and, and say, oh, we're here to study your volcano. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was really important to us um, because the North Koreans had come to the people that put the, the team together um, on our side of things and said, you know, th there's this volcano in our backyard. It's showing some signs of activity, you know, and we realized we don't have a very good capability to predict what it could do when it could erupt or if it did erupt, what would happen because it's very poorly studied. So they were reaching out to people to set up this collaboration, and it was this awesome opportunity to go in, we're you know in the field on the side of a volcano in North Korea, speaking to each other about the science. And when we went there, you know there were no flags. We weren't there to represent our country, and they weren't there to represent theirs. We were there as scientists to scientists, talking about this volcano, and it's you know, this place that these people have studied their entire lives. And so they're bringing this very important integral knowledge of the region, and we're bringing you know some techniques and and, and laboratory equipment and just you know collaborative ideas to, to work together with them. So, I mean, the, the, I guess the story I'm trying to build here is that you know I got to go and meet North Koreans that have become friends, and well, I don't get to see them really anymore, or it's hard to communicate with them now. I feel like we really did make this connection with the people who live in this place. And we were able to kind of show the world a bit about this volcano that's there and the things that people in North Korea can do, what they care about, you know, sort of normalize them a little bit. They're doing the best that they can with, you know, with the situation that they have, just like us. So it was just an incredible opportunity to use some of that diplomacy, I guess, that, that I've learned from watching Jean-Luc Picard and getting to actually, you know, use that to extend a hand. And I, and I really want to be clear too that this isn't a story of us coming in and being these kind people to them. It was this collaboration. And so everyone in the team was there to give something and to get something in return. And it was an incredibly successful collaboration that's something I'm really, really proud of. Uh, just proud to have been a part of it. Yeah, and you should be. That is Excellent. an amazing yeah. story, right? Yeah, being inspired by Star Trek and uh, going into science and then actually being able to, to do this amazing work but also connect people across borders is such a Star Trek story and shows how science can really be a, a unifying force for people of Earth and maybe in the future for people of different galactic civilizations. So, yeah, we would uh, hope so. Yeah. I work uh, on the Dawn mission. It's an American mission but it has a German-built camera and an Italian-built spectrometer. And so it's very much a collaboration of Americans, Italians, and Germans working together to understand these two objects that we visited, Vesta in series. So, yeah, I definitely echo what Kayla said there. These types of scientific projects can be very much in the spirit of Star Trek, of collaborating with people of different cultures, different approaches to doing science and learning from each other. And it's just, you know, what it's all, all a part of. Excellent. All right, so I've got just a few more questions for you. I know that we need to run off for a 1230 panel uh, that's coming up next. Kayla, you're an editor at trekmovie.com. 
TrekMovie.com is honestly where I go for all of my latest Star Trek news. Me too. <laughs> Glad to hear it. You guys do such a great job at covering groundbreaking Star Trek news as it comes out. What is it like being an editor for such a huge project? Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I, I appreciate it. Because that's, that's how I came into Trek Movie as well. I've been writing and editing for Trek Movie since 2007, and the site began in 06. But at the time, I was the same way. I was checking the website multiple times a day. It's an incredible experience. It's a really big part of my life working for Trek Movie and, and doing all the Star Trek stuff I do at conventions and the podcasts that we're doing now. Check us out on iTunes, the Shuttle Pod. Shuttle Pod, yes. <laughs> but no, it's awesome because I'm in this group of people. We have a Slack channel that we use to organize ourselves, and I can tune into that any time of day and I feel like I'm plugged right back. It's almost like a little mini convention going on all the time. I'm plugged right back into all the people. It's a huge group of people we have running the site and you know, talk to them about anything about Star Trek and we become very, very close friends. It's awesome to be able to put our passion you know, for Star Trek into something like this and it's really nice to hear that people you know, appreciate what we do. That's one of the great things about coming to cons is you get to put faces to names and you know, it's great to get good feedback or feedback of all kinds because sometimes it just feels like, you know, you're yelling into a void. Yeah. You do realize, like, no, what you're doing, people care about it. There's a community built up around it. I'm just, like, grateful to be a part of the site. It's, like I said, it's a really big part of my life. And it's fun, like, having our noses, you know, right up against all of the new Star Trek stuff that's coming out. You know, a lot of fans, obviously, are very, very passionate about Trek. But when you... When you're writing the stories about it, it makes you notice a lot more details, I think, um, about like news that's coming out. And you just kind of naturally become an expert because you're just surrounded by it all the time. We talk to each other what we think is going to happen you know, in the next season of Discovery based on things we've heard and behind the scenes rumors and all this stuff. So it's fun just to be plugged into that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm the uh, outgoing president of the United Federation of Phoenix. It's a Star Trek fan club in Phoenix, Arizona. It's actually the second longest continuously running Star Trek fan club in the country. It's been meeting every two weeks since 1975. And so, you know, it was one of the things I always looked forward to at some point in my life because I didn't have one when I was a kid. There was no Star Trek clubs where I was at, and I had to wait until I came to Arizona as a, you know, postdoc and now professor that I actually in a city that has a Star Trek fan club. And that's a great way, and we interact, and we watch episodes, and we all do sorts of uh, fun activities together. But it's a, another complement of fandom, but it doesn't take away from conventions and now this whole online world of, of it that you can do with podcasts like yours and the Shuttle Pod and, and Trek Movie and all of this stuff. So this great advantage of this internet era that we have, the social media era that we have now, is it allows Star Trek fans to connect in a way that they never were able to quite as well before. Wonderful. And speaking of being online, where can our listeners find and interact with you online? Well, you could definitely, you know, check us out at trekmovie.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at trekmovie. You're also welcome to, if you're interested in my ramblings, which is like 50% rocks, 50% Star Trek, and 50% jokes that I find funny, probably no one else finds funny, <laughs> including this one. I, I, I got that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you can check me out on Twitter. I'm at Kayla I. I love talking about Star Trek. So if you want to get to know me, send me a funny Star Trek meme. We'll hit it off. I'm also on Facebook, David Williams, and uh, I'm on Twitter, DavidAW222, and Instagram. They both have the same things. The United Federation of Phoenix has its own Facebook page. And, you know, whenever there's some good news, I will comment on various 
websites there. So, you know, and if you're in Phoenix, if anybody here listening to this is in Phoenix and is interested in being in a Star Trek fan club, you know, just look us up there. Yeah, and, and Dave and I actually host events together quite often. Um, last season for Discovery, we screened several episodes. We did the, uh, the premiere in our Marston Exploration Theater in our building for the School of Earth and Space Exploration on the Arizona State University Tempe campus. We did that. We also did all of the Mirror Universe stories leading up to the final episode of season one. And, yeah. you know, we do a panel and, and trivia and, prizes and, 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 and refreshments like and stuff like that. And we'll definitely do that again for the premiere of season two in January whenever it's going to occur. And so. it's, it's pretty cool to see Discovery on a gigantic screen. theater screen. Yeah. yeah, I saw your tweet about it, um, you know, hosting this big thing at ASU and projecting it in a giant lecture hall. And I was like, why isn't that happening at Caltech? So yeah. I scrambled together some friends and we did it in the uh, auditorium in the astronomy building there. So we, we definitely copied you guys on that one. That's awesome. No prizes and, and trivia and, and stuff like that. Maybe next for, for season two. <laughs> Well, um, Depending on how much money there. you have, just buy one of those Star Trek loot crate type things that they have there in the vendor hall. There's there's Random there's going to be six you, yeah. six items in there, and those are your trivia prizing it away. We should do like we can have sister events happening. Yeah. Be awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It was a pleasure to learn all about volcanoes on Earth and across the solar system. Good luck with everything research-wise, and enjoy the rest of the convention. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. That concludes episode 44 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Drs. Kayla Yacovino and David Williams. I really loved Kayla's story about doing science and science diplomacy in North Korea. As Bill Nye and the Planetary Society like to say, science is universal. And Kayla's joint mission with North Korean scientists to understand a dangerous volcano, a volatile part of the planet we all share, perfectly underscores that sentiment. And getting to hear about the geology of worlds other than Earth from Professor David Williams was fantastic as well. I mean, what lucky students he has over at ASU. Now, Kayla and David are not the only people I met at STLV. I also caught up with Trek FM podcasters Justin Ozer and Brandon Shea Mutala in person for the first time. They are both wonderful generous people who have had me as a guest on their podcasts, so you should definitely check out their work over at the Trek FM network. Finally, in other news, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory recently won an Emmy for Outstanding Original Interactive Program for their coverage of the Cassini spacecraft's grand finale. I'm proud to say that we've had a few Cassini scientists on this podcast. Professor Jonathan Fortney was on episode 19, Dr. Morgan Cable on episode 30, and Professor Jonathan Lunin, episode 41. So, if you haven't listened to those, I highly recommend doing so to celebrate Cassini's momentous win. A win for science is a win for everyone. Until next time, see you out there.